the truth is I had a doctor that ignored me. I had a doctor that wasn't really taking my concerns seriously. So that was definitely part of the problem. After Christine Hodgden learns she has metastatic breast cancer, otherwise known as MBC, she starts treatment right away. Well, not exactly right away. First, she gets a second opinion, and then another. I actually got three, four, five, and six opinions because everybody kept kind of disagreeing on the next course of treatment, and I was really looking for consensus. And as you can imagine, from the woman who gets six second opinions, Christine is very prepared for her treatment plan. I am a nerd. I'm an organization nerd, too, and I love spreadsheets. It was almost like I was built for this, a cancer diagnosis. I mean, I had, you know, a huge binder. I delegated all of these tasks to people. I had somebody come to every single one of my appointments. In just a few months, she goes through chemotherapy and then surgery and finally radiation. I just kept thinking, like, what if I'm going through all this chemo for nothing? You know, what if nothing works? And, and then I die at this young age. At the end of all these treatments, she gets a scan. Which I knew was going to be like a big deciding factor of what, what we would do next. A few days later... I was actually at a pizza shop <laughs> with my brother and my boyfriend at the time. And the results come on your phone automatically. And I read it. She reads it a second time. And it just said, no evidence of disease. So NED, or no evidence of disease, is a status where there had originally been cancer visible on scans that has essentially disappeared with treatment, such that if a radiologist were to read someone's scan who is currently NED, they might not know that they ever had metastatic disease. What oncologist Nancy Lynn is talking about, it's a big fucking deal. Because Christine still has MBC, she'll have to have treatments for the rest of her life. But she has had no evidence of disease for eight years now. I definitely feel like I've been given a gift that I actually get to live this life with what was supposed to be a terminal disease. But it feels almost like living between two worlds. I'm constantly reminded that this illness is very serious and that there are people dying from it every single day. The number changes every year, but it's around 116, 117 people die every day in the U.S. from metastatic breast cancer. So it's kind of always in my face. I can't ever escape the reality of that. Sometimes I can forget about it, but it's not for very long. Christine knows she's lucky. She also knows that many MBC patients aren't. Actually, most. So she's made advocacy her life. Her main goal is to ensure others with MBC have the same quality of life that she has and better access to clinical trials. Christine even created a massive database of clinical trials, a place where patients can search for and find trials that might be right for them. Christine is just one of the many leaders working tirelessly for equitable access to the best and most cutting-edge care. Care that advances science for everyone. I'm Mae McCarmo. This is part two of Denied, Hacking Healthcare.
In the last episode, we met patients who have been sharing their stories, who are raising awareness for the injustice Black women face in healthcare every day. But these women are not just sharing their stories. They're sharing resources. They're pushing boundaries, challenging the status quo. They're educating other patients on how to get what they need. We are hacking the system all the time. I mean, it's such a big undertaking. Christine's advocacy work has taken many shapes. One of those shapes has been educating other MBC patients and showing them how to get around the red tape. The example that we always give with brain metastasis patients are people who are suspicious of maybe having brain nets that they have to fake a headache so that they can get a brain MRI because, you know, it's something we actually don't screen for, even though like 30 to 50 percent of patients have a probability of developing brain metastasis depending on their subtype. They don't scan you until you have symptoms. Christine knows that at times, you have to take matters into your own hands. But as a white woman, she had no idea how true this was for people of color. Then she began to advise a fellow MBC patient. Her name was Kamisha, and Christine says she was not getting the standard of care. Just being offered chemo that wasn't actually working. She was already chemotherapy resistant. Her family was from Jamaica. And I think that they just weren't taking her that seriously. They heard an accent and they were like, mm, you know, we're just going to do what we're doing. And I was on the phone with the doctor and I just, I was mad. I just started yelling at him. I said, you know, so why aren't you offering her any clinical trials? And they said, well, we don't have any here. I said, well, that's here. What about other places? She can travel. She can travel. Why are you not looking at clinical trials? And why haven't you done any genetic testing? This is a Black woman. She could have a genetic mutation, which would make her more eligible for certain types of treatments. And they didn't really have a good answer for that. You know, I was just very, very upset that this doctor was just basically letting her die. So what happened to Kamisha happens to Black women all too often. She died. Christine can't help but think what would have happened if her doctor had given her the standard of care. Would Kamisha still be alive today? Kamisha is one of the 115 women who die from MBC every single day. If people like Christine weren't around to help patients hack the healthcare system, I can bet that number would be even higher. But it begs the question, why do we need to hack the system in the first place? Some of what needs to happen is patients need to advocate for themselves, but that's like letting us off the hook too easily, right? Because at the end of the day, like patients shouldn't have to fight that hard to get what they should get. We shouldn't, but we have to. So patients with MBC have had to become the experts of their own care to ensure they get the best shot at living longer. And where I see patients really stepping up is one of the spaces that is perhaps the most inequitable. Clinical trials. Okay, but like, what is even a clinical trial? And why do patients like Christine, who are metastatic, care about them so much? A clinical trial is a type of research study which enrolls patients with a particular disease, for example, early-stage breast cancer or metastatic breast cancer, testing a new approach or new treatment. Being in a clinical trial means that you are bringing us all closer to a cure, that you, the patient, 
and gets access to the best, newest treatments for little or no additional cost. MBC Care is pretty expensive, so that's a big benefit. And yet there's so many things that still stand in the way of our progress. First, there's a research gap. Not enough people focusing on MBC research. I think that it's so appealing to think about cure. And right now, the patients we can cure are patients with early stage disease. You know, one of the things that always bothers me a little bit is that, you know, when we think about drug development, oftentimes we think about developing drugs in the metastatic breast cancer space so that we can take them through the early stage breast cancer space and cure more patients with early stage disease. And you say, well, that's all fine and good. I want to cure more patients with early stage disease too. But, you know, metastatic breast cancer patients aren't just a stepping stone. They're not just like a way to get to the early stage space. They deserve research and advances for their own sake. A 2014 study from the MBC Alliance showed that only 7% of breast cancer research funding is dedicated to MBC. That percent has probably increased since 2014, but as of now, we just don't know how much. There's no doubt that metastatic cancer research is underfunded. I think because it's hard to study. It's really hard. Once the cancer escapes this primary tumor and it roots itself in other organs, like brain metastasis especially, is very, very difficult. There's still so much we don't know. The good news? There are people that are working to change this. I'm Sonia Negley, and I'm the executive director of Metaviver Research and Support. When we first started, we were a support group that raised some money and tried to earmark it for metastatic breast cancer research with a national organization, and they wouldn't take it as an earmark. At the time, there were no orgs focusing solely on raising money to fund MBC research. And so they created it. Metaviver's goal is that someday, at least 30% of breast cancer research dollars will be dedicated to MBC. If we just give them the whole bright side of the disease, then people aren't going to feel it's very urgent to fund research. And it is urgent because there's a handful of people that live beyond five years. But there's a growing number of people who are diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. And the younger they are, the quicker they pass. If you solve it stage four, everybody wins. Today, Metaviber has raised millions to fund MBC research for people like Dr. Lin, who focuses on brain mets. But people trying to raise funds for MBC research are fighting an uphill battle. Dr. Lin has some ideas why. If you think about fundraising, it's much more straightforward to have somebody who is, you know, cured of their breast cancer being a spokesperson, right? It's a lot harder when it's somebody who's living with metastatic breast cancer because in some ways our society kind of looks at people who are living with metastatic disease as a failure of our system, right? A failure of our treatments. And people don't want to be reminded of these bad things that can happen. So I think that that also makes it a little harder to fundraise, honestly. Even though at the end of the day, when people die breast cancer, for the most part, they're dying of metastatic breast cancer. We need more money. (laughs) We, We need more funds behind research. In 2015, after hearing the words, you have TMBC, Sharon Riviera Sanchez enrolled in a clinical trial. 
I started noticing that, you know, it wasn't a lot of black and brown people in the clinical trial. She's right. As of 2023, about 15% of cancer patients in the U.S. are black, and yet they represent only about 5% of patients in all cancer clinical trials. So Sharon starts asking around, and she's like, well, why are clinical trials so white? She begins to hear the same fears over and over again. The thing is, all these fears are straight up legit, but they're costing people their lives. So like Christine, Sharon begins to help patients one-on-one, telling them, It's okay to feel that way, but let's look at all the benefits of a clinical trial. She begins her own organization, Trials of Color, focused on educating Black and brown women on clinical trials and addressing patients' concerns head-on. Like, what if I get the placebo, a.k.a. nothing? For metastatic breast cancer trials, if there's a placebo, generally speaking, it's being combined with a standard chemo or standard regimen, and so everybody is receiving some sort of treatment. But the most common concern that Sharon hears... I'm not going to be a guinea pig. Dr. Monique Gary, a.k.a. Dr. Mo, hears this one a lot, too. You know, I don't want to be experimented on. This is the most important thing in my life right now. I don't want to risk it. And this fear has some deep roots. Mistrust in the medical system rooted in history, like the Tuskegee study in 1932, a 40-year experiment where nearly 400 Black men living with syphilis were denied treatment. White House Bioethics Commission has revealed gruesome new details about American-run venereal disease experiments on unsuspecting Guatemalans from 1946 to 48. Marion Sims, often referred to as the father of modern gynecology, purchased black women slaves and used them as guinea pigs for his untested surgical experiments. Henrietta Lacks died of cervical cancer in 1951 at Johns Hopkins, where doctors cut out a sample of her cancer cells without her permission. And so there's a level of education and health literacy that needs to happen in our community so that patients would understand that you'll never get less than the standard of care if you are enrolled in a clinical trial. We used to find young women would get a diagnosis and you throw the kitchen sink at them. But now we can test their tumors and we can be more nuanced and more personalized in that approach. But that only comes with things like clinical trials. It's so important for Black women to participate in clinical trials because this is how advances are made. But by the time a patient finally opens up to a clinical trial, they're often out of options. A lot of people still think that clinical trials are for like the very end. You know, when you've gone through all the normal treatments, then you look for clinical trials and then patients are disappointed to find out that they actually missed out on many trials that they could have participated in all along the way. Dr. Mo says even doctors can fall into this trap as well. A lot of women with TNBC and also with metastatic breast cancer sort of fall into this place of not being offered a trial early. But once every other intervention has failed, then the doctor will say, well, let's begin to look at clinical trials. It's a fallacy and a failure on the part of the healthcare system to offer patients trials as a last resort because there are clinical trials for everything at every point along a patient journey. And it really should be an early consideration, especially for individuals who may have more aggressive disease. So I do think if someone's interested in trials, even if you're sort of trial curious and you're not sure, it's really important to 
meet with a doctor who routinely enrolls patients in clinical trials, who can help navigate the trial possibilities for you. But it's not like everyone with MBC has the chance to be trial curious. People of color are more likely to get their care in community institutions, in their local neighborhoods, where the doctors maybe look like them, where they don't have to travel as far because there may be some barriers and some social determinants of health that limit their ability to get to some of the tertiary centers. There may be a preference there as well when you look at, for example, the city of Boston. There are five major medical centers, but the majority of people will still get their care closer to where they live because their doctors look like them and because they feel seen and they don't feel so intimidated by the healthcare environment. And in those settings, you may find fewer clinical trials. That too creates a barrier, not just for the patient, but for the clinician who would like to certainly do the best job for their patient. But if they don't have the trial available, they won't offer that trial. Of course, women who are black and brown deserve the same options as white women. But scientists need us too. They need diversity in clinical trials. So here's the thing. Genetics play a huge role in medicine. It's why your doc asks about your family history, so they know your risks and can personalize your care. Our genes impact what diseases we're more prone to, what symptoms we experience, the hormones our bodies make, and how we react to medication especially when it comes to breast cancer. This is why Black women are nearly three times more likely to develop triple negative breast cancer, also known as TMBC. I've had it myself. TMBC, by definition, is aggressive. It's been named that because the three markers that we test all breast cancers for, estrogen, progesterone, and HER2, are negative for all three markers in the triple negative subtype. That type of cancer is defined by what it isn't instead of what it is. If you have TNBC, your cancer cells don't have the hormone receptors found in most breast cancers. And the cells also don't make this protein called HER2, which is common in breast cancer. Most breast cancer treatments target these receptors. So if you have TNBC, a lot of the treatment options currently available won't work for you, leaving you with less options. Every single tumor is unique, just like every individual is unique. So we have a lot of work to do, I think, to better understand how breast cancer is unique and the unique ways in which it can be treated. What I'm trying to get at is genetics matter. So if we're studying a treatment, then the clinical trial should reflect the people using the treatment. There was this TMBC trial in 2018. It led to a super important breakthrough. It was the first FDA-approved immunotherapy for breast cancer. But get this, only 6% of patients in the trial were Black. Black women are even underrepresented in trials for TMBC, a cancer that is most common for Black women. Does that sound equitable to you? No one ever talked to me about a clinical trial early on in my diagnosis. Never heard about it. Former hospice nurse Stephanie Walker learned she had MBC in 2015. Even though Stephanie was a medical professional, she still had a lot to learn. There's nothing that teaches you how to be a metastatic breast cancer patient. Especially when it comes to clinical trials. As a nurse, I thought clinical trials were at the end. You know, there's nothing else to try. Then she starts to meet other MBC patients, other Black MBC patients. 
I've always been in the minority of everything I have ever done. And I can tell you, I never realized how empowered you could feel with a room full of Black women that have metastatic breast cancer. And she starts to unlearn some of her beliefs. Okay, so it's 2019. Stephanie is at a conference. She sees her friend Marina Kaplan. Marina is an epidemiologist and an NBC patient. She's been surveying patients on clinical trial engagement. So Marina's standing in front of a giant poster presenting her findings. It's got all these awesome ideas from patients on the best ways to increase clinical trial engagement. But only 8.87 of the respondents to the survey were Black. And she was asking me, why didn't a lot of Black people do my survey? Well, how the hell am I supposed to know? I did it. (laughs) She said, I really want to find out why. She goes, would you help me? I said, sure, I'll help you. Marina passed away from NBC in 2020, before she and Stephanie began their work in earnest. And Stephanie thought, well, I guess that's that. But then she gets a call from a nonprofit. Living Beyond Breast Cancer came to me to ask me about it in April of 2020. They want to know about this survey that she and Marina have been talking about. The hell? Where'd y'all get that information from? You know, well, Marina said that, you know, you were willing to do it again. I was like, she's speaking from the grave. Damn it. So anyway, I said, sure, if I can have somebody to help do it, I would be willing to do it. The project is named Become. It stands for Black Experience of Clinical Trials and Opportunities for Meaningful Engagement. I thought, how hard can it be? All I had to do was write down some questions on a piece of paper, copy it off, and distribute it to whoever and put it online and let them fill it out, right? That's all. (laughs) No, that's not how it was done. (laughs) Stephanie had no prior research experience, so she's starting from scratch. It takes over two years. The Become team publishes their study in October 2022. They find out that most people would consent to a clinical trial had the conversation been talked about, you know, and that is the biggest thing. They ask the why you're not telling me about it. When I was diagnosed with TMBC 17 years ago, no one even offered me a clinical trial. And it made a lot of people take a look at what was going on. Everybody acknowledges there's disparities, but it's kind of hard when it's staring you in the face. And once that data was glaring, it could no longer be ignored. And Stephanie couldn't ignore what she had uncovered either. It wasn't a coincidence that no one asked her about clinical trials. And in that split moment, you know, you don't know who I am. You walk into the room and immediately those biases click in and you look at me like, oh, she's going to be an angry black woman. And she's probably not educated enough to even know about clinical trials. If she signs up, she's not going to complete it or she can't afford to do it. It's so important to make sure that you have at least had that conversation. And to clinicians who may be listening to this, it's important to offer to your patients, not as a last resort, but as an early and a life-saving and an innovative option. Offer that patient that trial. Having that conversation can be hard for doctors too. 
A recent study showed that many doctors said they were never given details on how to actually enroll patients into clinical trials. So even when they did bring it up, they didn't know which direction to point their patients in. Others said they didn't have enough information on certain clinical trials, that they didn't know what to say or share with their patients. If you don't know about it, talk to your nurse, talk to your cancer program, and make sure that you are aware of your options and aware of the options for the patient. It's more than the standard of care. This is how we practice quality medicine for patients. And if you really don't have time to explain clinical trials to your patients? I do, and I will take the time to explain it. Even if we have to do a clinical trial 101 once a month, I'll come to your hospital free of charge and I will explain it because it makes a huge difference. We are busy and we are room to room to room with barely a minute to eat our lunch too. Then we got to make sure that we are partnering with our community and with those navigators and with those ambassadors and those ombuds people and those women who can stand up and say, you know what? I was in a trial. Let me tell you about it, sis. You got a few minutes? And we can say, let's give you the number. We have somebody who wants to talk to you about this. And they can educate you when you're ready and not just bombard people with information. There's an entire community of patients and advocates, people like Sharon, Stephanie, Christine, Shante, and myself, who have the knowledge and desire to help, but they're not being utilized. And that part of it is what's missing. There's the gap. It's that we give the information, it's all in a folder and a file, And then we say we've done our job. So we have more work to do, but that comes through the collaborative part. That's what communities can tap into. So what happens when we start collaborating, when doctors and patients start to work together? We'll find out after the break. So by now, it's probably pretty obvious that Christine Hodgden likes to keep busy. Almost as busy as me. Mm, Almost. As both a scientist and an NBC patient, she starts to see these huge gaps between patients and researchers. There was just this lack of communication between patients and scientists. It is true that clinicians get to see patients, but, you know, they're only seeing them as doctor and patient. So she co-founds an organization called GRASP. Which stands for Guiding Researchers and Advocates to Scientific Partnerships. And that's all we do is we facilitate small group discussions between patients and scientists. So we always say oncologists are experts in treating the disease. Researchers are experts in studying the disease. But we're actually experts in living with it. So we wanted to create like a forum where people could actually interact. We both have this fear of talking to each other. Patients are a little bit afraid of maybe sounding uneducated, not understanding the science. And then researchers are afraid of being insensitive. And so when they come out of it, they kind of go, oh, we're all people. We're all just humans like trying to live this life and maybe find a cure for cancer. Over the years of watching these conversations between patients and researchers, Christine has seen an incredible shift. So for patients, we see this increase in hope around meeting people who have devoted their lives and their careers to finding a cure for cancer. We've seen people's confidence go up because they realize that you don't have to be a scientist to understand it. Maybe it will inform how you speak to your doctor down the road. And with scientists, it's kind of an alleviation of burnout. 
when they get to interact with patients, it energizes them and makes them feel really supported. We always say that we are your biggest supporters. We want the scientists to succeed because our lives literally depend on it. Patient advocates can really serve as a sounding board for how do you make your trial practical and also patient-friendly and attractive. There are lots of trials that you could design that scientifically would be perfectly fine, but that neither doctors nor patients are going to want to enroll on because like the design is just it's not appealing. I've helped a lot of researchers get grants. <laughs> I don't want to take all the credit. I think that their science is very sound. But what we can do as patients is we can identify how impactful their research will be. Often patients ask things that researchers would never even think to question. Another friend of mine, Ann Lozer, started the Patient-Centered Dosing Initiative. What we receive now is maximum tolerated dose. Not the dose that works the best, just the dose that is the maximum people can tolerate before they all have terrible side effects. And what they're seeing is that actually sometimes the maximum tolerated dose isn't always the most effective, that you can actually have a lower dose and still do remarkably well. You know, we've known for a long time that most patients probably don't need the maximum tolerated dose, but it really took patient advocates pushing on this issue for many, many years because nobody's ever really asked if it can be different. So she started to ask the question. Remember Dr. Lin talking about us getting closer to finding a possible cure for MBC? That she believed it could happen in our lifetime? This isn't just wishful thinking. Dr. Lin is watching the speed at which progress is happening. But what exactly are these game-changing treatments? What is Dr. Lin seeing that makes her have such hope in finding a cure? So immunotherapy is essentially treatments to help enhance the body's natural immune system to fight cancer. And the idea with these medicines is that tumor cells can attract the immune system. So we all have immune cells that find viruses and bacteria, but they can also find tumor cells. But tumor cells are smart. So even when an immune cell is coming for a tumor cell, the tumor can actually switch the immune cells off. Your body's defenses are basically put on mute. And what these new immunotherapy drugs do is that they turn the switch back on so that your immune cells can attack the tumor cells. But sometimes tumors are hard for the immune system to find. So if your immune cells just haven't figured it out and they haven't figured out how to get to the tumor, it's called cold tumors. Not literally cold. They don't attract immune cells. And cold tumors right now do not respond to immunotherapy. So one of the areas of research is how can you make cold tumors hot? And this is really important because most breast cancers are cold. Turning cold tumors hot, it's like turning on a light so the immune cells can actually find the tumor, kind of like moths to a flame. And so if we can find ways to better train our own immune cells, can we then combine them with the existing immune therapies to really revolutionize how people do? But the real reason why immunotherapy is so exciting, the immune system is dynamic as fuck. If I were to give like a drug like Taxol, it's manufactured in a factory. It looks chemically the same every single time I give Taxol. And when the cancer mutates and evolves, the Taxol 
is not able to follow it. It stays the same old Taxol, and that's how treatments stop working. The immune cell is really different from treatments like chemo because the immune system can consistently evolve over time. That's how your body has been able to fight, you know, COVID-19 and can fight pneumonia, it can fight whatever else, is because it can respond to new threats and evolve to meet them. And so if we can actually really properly train the immune system, that means that if the cancer evolves and changes, the immune system can follow it. It can evolve along with it. And that's what's so cool. So that's why there's like so much research that's being poured into immune therapies, not only for breast cancer, but for other cancers. Dr. Lin's also excited about another treatment. The so-called antibody drug conjugates. And often you'll hear these referred to as ADCs. It's just the way that your body would make natural antibodies. They can be manufactured. And things can stick to an antibody, like chemo, for instance. So it'll pull whatever is attached to it to the cancer cell and then deliver it at very high levels. For a long time now, people were just given huge doses of IV chemotherapy that would affect your entire body, even the parts that don't need it. And the side effects suck. Nausea, hair loss, fatigue, you name it. But with the power of antibody delivery systems, also known as ADCs, you can bring the chemotherapy right to the tumor cells. Door-to-door service, no pit stops, no diversions. Sometimes people refer to these as smart bombs, but basically they drag the chemotherapy in very high concentrations to the tumors. This concept has been so successful, which is why there are a lot of ADCs in clinical trials right now. And you can target different targets. You can attach different things onto the antibody. And this is really exciting. We see results from phase one trials where a really good proportion of patients are seeing dramatic tumor shrinkages. You know, historically, we've thought of phase one trials as, oh, you know, who's going to benefit? It's very low doses. These phase one trials of ADCs, we see incredible responses in some patients. And so I think that over the next five years, we're going to see more and more ADCs enter the market. But Dr. Lin's main focus is brain metastases. That is cancer from breast cancer that has spread to the brain. We have actually been able to test new drugs and new combinations in the lab, try to pick out the ones that look the best, and then knock on lots of doors to try to turn those concepts into clinical trials for patients. One recent example is a laboratory-based study where Dr. Zhao combined TDM1 or Cadzilla with a oral HER2 drug called neratinib. And this combination looked effective even in tumors which had become resistant to TDM1. And so then this led to a phase two trial that Rachel Friedman led actually showed that in patients we can induce tumor regressions or tumor shrinkage in the brain with this combination, even in patients whose cancers had previously worsened on TDM1. So the lab and the clinic data kind of matched up. So yes, real progress is being made, thanks to all the doctors and patients who dare to ask questions. What Christine said about breaking down silos really hit me about what happens when doctors and patients talk to each other. Not as a researcher talking to a subject, but person to person. When they create together and innovate together, you build hope, 
you build purpose, and you build transformation. So maybe you've underestimated what hope can do. Because hope isn't just about feeling sparkly inside. It can actually be a tool that brings us closer to a cure. We need to make sure that patients see the results of clinical trials and that they see campaigns with especially the target demographic, let's say black women, who have been in trials, right? And they're now talking about their experience in clinical trials. That's one of the most powerful tools to see someone say, I was in a trial and here's what happened to me. It saved my life. I'm now 20 something years with metastatic TNBC. There are these women out there. They exist. They're an inspiration. I know them through my work in advocacy, but if I weren't in advocacy, I don't know that as a clinician, I would be aware of some of these folks who can really speak to the experience, especially of things like NBC, where we need to paint a picture of hope. But there is one other piece of the puzzle that we haven't quite talked about yet. That could only have been achieved through legislation because you can see with the pushback that we received, that young women's breast health wasn't prioritized and wasn't going to be unless the law required that it be. On the final episode of Denied, the fight for care goes to Congress. Denied is a production of Offscript Health. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Tonight is hosted by me, Mae McCarmo. Our senior producer is Stephanie Cohn. Tamika Adams is our producer. Hannah Beale is our editor. Sound mixing and engineering by Kyle Moore. This episode was sound designed by Stephanie Cohn. Music is from Soundstripe. Special thanks to our nonprofit partners, Sandra Gunn from Leslie's Week and Sonia Nedley from MetaViber. <laughs>